You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives, live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. We all know that the corporate mandate has changed and that customers and employees and now even investors are starting to meaningfully push companies towards stakeholder and not shareholder capitalism. But what does this look like within companies across industries and sectors within the four walls of the day-to-day work? Today, I'm grateful to be joined by Carolyn Berkowitz, President and CEO of the Association of Corporate Citizenship Professionals, ACCP, which advances the field by providing its community of purpose-driven companies and employees with valuable peer connections and education and resources that help them identify and understand these trends, improve their results, and expand their impact. Carolyn has an incredible bird's eye view on how companies are making good on their commitments to human rights and social change and sounds off on the importance of diversifying the corporate citizenship and employee engagement professionals within companies that are activating that change and how slow change can be, but it can still be meaningful. We reflect in general on this new era of unprecedented external and internal pressure for businesses to take ownership of social causes, what that means, and how much further we still have to go. Carolyn, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here today. Thanks, Danielle. I'm excited to be here. So anyone who is a CSR professional knows you. And in looking at your past roles, social good and impact has always been a North Star in your career. So tell our listeners how you got to where you are today, leading the ACCP, and what what brought you there? What drove you to this role in this this moment in time? Sure, thank you. Um, so social good has always been my my north star um, from my very earliest. And so I, it's actually funny because I um, I studied psychology as an undergraduate, but it never quite landed right for me as a career. And I my earliest job was in an association covering adult literacy and so an adult basic education. And, you know, that fascinated me and it took much of my desire to make a difference and make an impact and change the human experience, um, but put it into more of a businessy context for me, which was really where I ultimately went. And I would say that my career has sort of been split into two two primary areas. One is nonprofit leadership at both the Points of Light and America's Promise. And then the transition to corporate responsibility and and taking all that I had learned about community change and community organizing 
and how corporations could make a difference because both of those organizations had that in their portfolio and in their mix um, and moved to leading Capital One social impact work. And now to leading an association of professionals that are in that same space. So to me, each role has built on every single one of the others. And it feels to me like a very natural progression of ideas and skills and leadership for me. For others, it might not always resonate as the exact same thing, but I think, you know, social impact can go in a lot of different ways. But what I love most about this role is that I am fortunate enough now to sit in a seat where I have a bird's eye view and it's a bird's eye view of more than 220 of the best companies and how how they've structured their business case for social impact, how they develop their strategies and um, what the challenges they've encountered are and, and help them through some of those things as they seek to create impact on both their business and to society. So for me, it feels like a very natural progression. And um, I feel so privileged and fortunate that it has taken the direction it has. Well, and what a foundation for this type of work in psychology, right? Mm -hmm. In this type of work where you are building something new, where you are constantly selling people on the importance of social impact work and the business case associated with it, CSR professionals and those of us who support them really need to understand how people think and how, what, what will click, right. And to be right. leading with empathy. So yeah. And the community voice as well. I, I do feel like um, the preparation in human development and, um, and and some of those disciplines have helped me to have a different kind of empathy for different cultural experiences. And right. it's, you know, it's something that interests me and that I care deeply about. Well, and to that point, I mean, some of the work that ACCP is leading right now, you all have really leaned into the pandemic response and the racial justice mandate that I think we all feel and supporting companies' roles in that. And you released a study called, and everyone should read this, The Impact of Pandemic and Racial Justice Movement on CSR. 64% of CSR leaders say racial justice is a new long-term CSR priority. And 45% have increased funding. And so this is a, it's a movement that was activated to a greater degree, right? In the last year, year and a half, but is long-term is, is sticking around and it's incredibly encouraging. And some of what I have heard and seen and felt is a criticism that companies are not translating their narrative into action. You know, we've had on this podcast, for example, folks from Just Capital who mm-hmm. really look closely at how companies are making good on these promises, which is the moment that we're in, right? Equi- supporting, equipping, and ensuring that companies are taking meaningful internal and external action on this. And would be curious your perspective, because this is this is hard work. And one of the things that Yusuf George, who was on this podcast said is no company is there, right? No company has reached 
the perfect point of achieving an anti-racist culture and racial equity in this world right now. We are all, nonprofits as well, all on this journey because of the society that we're anchored in. And CSR professionals are doing, and I've seen this up close, um, have incredible initiatives underway, are doing incredible work, and are making meaningful progress that doesn't always hit the headlines, right? So would be curious from your, your perch, your bird's eye view, what are some of those challenges that CSR professionals are, are tackling and where have you seen the, the progress? Uh, that is a, a phenomenal question. Um, and it's pretty packed. So one of the things I would love to do with you is to unpack the question because there's a lot to it, I think, here. And so many truths and some falsehoods in what you were saying. So we did a study that you mentioned um, with Rocket Social Impact, and it I, it did identify racial justice as the as a new long term strategy um, in big numbers. But it also talked about um, how corporations are doing things differently to um, to do things with an equity lens maybe not necessarily to change the focus on racial justice, but to have a similar outcome. So 85% of companies say they are doing something differently in, in this racial justice space. So it could be that they are um, sticking with their funding priority areas, but um, doing so with a racial equity lens. So the way they're funding or who they're funding might be different. It could be that they are partnering um, and integrating much more closely with their um, DEI department or or HR department and supporting um, internal activities like workforce development and recruiting or um, job training for folks already in the company, pipelining or any number of other things. Um, and so I think it's it's woven throughout, and I think the change really is real. I think it is the biggest change that in my lifetime I've seen in this space, and it is fast. So, you know, the change was fairly immediate, or at least the recognition of the need to change was fairly immediate. And as impatient as we all are for every single correct reason. It's only been a year of real focus um, of national reckoning in some ways. And so, you know, it, it does take a while. It's a journey. And so I think if companies were to move too quickly, it might do more harm than good. Companies really shouldn't just throw resources at something without the depth of understanding. And so I I don't think that that's an excuse, but I do think it is a reality. And so I think that there are many, many companies that are on the learning journey and we have to let them get there. So in terms of that criticism, I think it's a that's really important to understand. So there has been criticism about this, you know, almost 50 billion dollars that was committed by corporations and and the action that backs it up. Um, and so I really think it's useful to underst- 
unpack that a little bit and understand what it what it really consists of. So of the almost 50 billion, 49 and a half billion that was pledged by corporations to racial equity following the murder of George Floyd, 90% of that money, so 45 million and change, is not philanthropic. It is um, business investment or lending opportunities like mortgages, small business loans, investments in small businesses, um, all of those kinds of things. So um, 45 out of the 50 billion is is not philanthropic. And of that 45 billion, it's just a handful of companies, mostly financial services companies. So while they do need to be monitored and reported on for public good, and I that's one of the reasons why I love Just Capital because they do that work. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a it's a quite an accurate reflection on what is being done about those commitments. So of the you know little over four billion that's that's been pledged in the form of donations, a lot of them are multi year, and so some of those studies that have that have come out only reflect what is been spent in this given year. And again. You don't want to throw money at something without really understanding the problem and the tra the trajectory of change. So it's multi-year grants in economic equality and education and civil rights and healthcare and criminal justice and, and doing some of those things differently. So I do think those are happening and I think they will continue happening. And I think the quality um, of those um pledges and gifts and multi-year grants will get better and better as the community players and the corporations work together and learn together. Um, and then I think, which in some ways is the guts of the question that I sort of couldn't answer until I had talked about those other two things, is there are lots of challenges. Um, I think every corporation is deeply challenged. It's the number one request we get, whether it is how to measure, how to fund more equitably, how to um, how to describe what you're doing. Um, and I and I think that um, that kind of change needs to be embraced. Um, I think in many ways, the biggest challenges are unlearning what this young profession has learned about itself. So I think we believe that we are different and we're special and we're not like other funders because we have to connect to the business context. Um, and that is absolutely true. However, um, we, the philanthropy sector has been doing this work for much longer than the corporate philanthropy sector. And there is much to learn from them. Um, and we are starting to understand that. And conferences and meetings are starting to be filled with people from foundations and nonprofit organizations who are authentically um, working on racial equity in, in philanthropy. I think the other, another thing is that we, the, the corp, corporate social impact has um, by and large funded big, well-known, often national, seemingly 
what I would call risk-free organizations. Um, and they do that because it's easy to run with a corporate partnership. And what we now know is that these aren't necessarily the folks who are going to be doing the best work in equity, um, nor are they generally led by people of color. And so that's a different kind of risk and something that we need to unlearn. And I think there are a couple other things that we struggle with. One is that we've learned that we should be lifting all boats. You know, our funding should be on um, addressing poverty writ large or on STEM education for girls. And our sector has not disaggregated data in order to better understand the specific gaps, mostly racial gaps in achievement in any of these areas. And so to be equitable, we've got to start asking and answering different questions that maybe we were not used to asking before. And we've got to learn how to disaggregate data and understand that, you know, for example, if you look at the Asian population and their um, their progression and their grades in school, the common wisdom is, you know, they're doing great. And then you look at, you disaggregate to specific Asian populations, you can see all kinds of trends and different things that say, you know, perhaps from certain countries, there are really high scores and and other nationalities like like the Hmong population, for example, has a very different experience in terms of their achievement. So that there's a gap there to address. And we haven't thought about the world that way. And now we are. Um, so, you know, I think um, we have to listen differently. We can't think ourselves to learn it about these things. And we have to change some of the suppositions with, with which we've done our work, right? And that's hard. And get comfortable with risk is a theme. Exactly. Get thing. comfortable with risk, right? Yeah. It's a different risk. You know, one of the things that I I used to say as a funder was, if you have a batting average of 300, that's pretty good, right? But if you have a batting average in terms of success with your grants of a third, that doesn't feel so good. So it's kind of like, how do you, how do you understand that you've got to go up to bat and you've got to, you know, you've got to try and you've got to continually learn and you'll get better and better at it, but you're never going to be a hundred percent in your grants. And it's kind of silly to expect that. Because you're never a hundred percent in social outcomes, right? That's I mean, right. It's, it's, it's not possible and it's not what we should be aiming for, but I do think that it is what we are all wired to want. <laughs> right. Um, and that's something, and I, this is, this is something that I've observed across both the individual, personal and the institutional journeys to towards equity and towards building anti-racist cultures and towards listening to the folks that are closest to the communities that are in pain or proximate to those communities is that there is 
the reservations for fully leaning in, fully engaging come from a fear of making a mistake or saying the wrong thing or with companies alienating customers that um, who have varied political views or from very different communities and would be curious what your advice would be to those, those individuals and the institutions, right. To, um, to jump over those barriers in a world where, as we were talking about before, the headlines and the criticisms tend to be incredibly summative, right. And, and not recognize the work that is in progress and the work that is, going on and so that risk is fair that right that or the the fear risk is fair um yeah what what advice would you give to those folks so i you know i think um what what we know from studies this year um ceos are beginning to not just beginning to ceos understand that they have a role to play in this movement and they understand that they need to change and they are desperately afraid of, of, as you say, alienating customers, making a gaffe, revealing their own weaknesses. You know, when somebody gives their numbers, their hiring numbers, their diversity numbers, their equity in pay numbers and makes them public, it's a great leadership stance and where they started can too often be the story, right? So, you know, it, I think it, it's easy to say that we all just need to act. We need to act and we need to get comfortable with it. And I believe the best leaders are transparent leaders. I trust a leader who learns more than I trust a leader that says I've been right all along. But we live in a world where... um folks will hang on to the story they want to hang on to. Right. And so it, you know, it is difficult. I think there are a few things that are working in, in our favor or that are starting to change things. I think all corporate leaders will respond to the market, right? And now the mainstream market, their employees, their customers, and the investors in their companies are demanding the change. Their boards are demanding the change. And so they can't help but to do something about that. I think that's a really good thing. I think some of the best change comes from crisis. So, you know, I look at a company like Starbucks that, you know, went through a crisis of racial reckoning um, with with, uh, something that hit the front page and then some on customer service and racist practices. Maybe one could say that it was unconscious bias, but whatever it was, there was a lot of pressure to change. And they really, really have invested in making some of those changes. And then I think that a lot of companies are doing lots of things, but they want to believe that they're fundamentally bad. So one company that I think is doing some of the most progressive and innovative work is Walmart. Um, Walmart set up a center for racial equity, and they um, have been at it for most of a year. And it is it it takes the key issues that 
they fundamentally care about and applies them to all of their internal and external work throughout the company. And the CEO is the one championing it. So, um, so we could be, um, we could be focused on sort of all the stories about Walmart. And I would say the media is focused on that stuff. You know, most of what comes out about that company is still critical, but they are doing, you know, really unique, introspective work. Um, and most of the most, like a lot of the most extraordinary BIPOC talent is going there to do that work right now. And that story just isn't being told. We're relying on the brand and historical perspective and, and past action. And that is all that is. And and selling news in some ways, but I, you know, I, I think companies rightfully are afraid to tout their own, their own progress or to, you know, to champion themselves. And I think it only starts when somebody is willing to say, here's where we started and here's where we're going and here's where we are. And so I encourage wherever possible, and again, it can impact the stock price and all of those things that they have to think about, but um, as much as possible to say so. Well, and to the the people that are doing the work, right, in the social sector and CSR, we are, especially in leadership roles, are dominated by white leaders, even though we are often ultimately serving communities of color. And we're also, I I mean, this used to be a joke when we were in in in-person conferences, right? We're all women. (laughs) Um, And we're starting to see some of that shift and a focus on making sure that we are, we are, white leaders are stepping down and BIPOC leaders are stepping up and a changing demographic within CSR. And I know that you have just launched a survey to get to just this question, equity in the CSR profession to understand the demographics of the corporate citizenship professionals that unlock a lot of this work within their own companies and with the community partners they work with. What what are you hoping to look at with the results of that survey? What are you looking to inform? So, uh, yeah, I uh, we have a hypothesis, just as you said, and it's observational that the field is made up primarily of white women. So when we look around a room, there's a lot of white women. Um, it is changing some, but, it, you know, there are a lot of of white women. And it's always been a vision of mine and ours to diversify the profession for the needs of the future. So there is no way we can meet the complicated changing nature of of the future um, without having um, representative, inclusive, equitable um, corporations and departments doing that work. So I think um, what could have been or what is, you know, what is a long-term change all of a sudden became really necessary really quickly. One of the things that I heard a lot 
in just in the response to um, how companies, you know, how companies organize themselves and what they're doing around racial equity immediately following George Floyd and up until now, some folks in the privacy of of a more intimate group conversation said it's really hard for me us to um, to provide preference to or to select organizations led by people of color when our team is all white. So, and that's very true. I mean, I, I can understand the discomfort and yet. Um, so I think part of what we want to do is, is not just understand, you know, we could go on about the why our field is mostly white women, but more importantly, I think we needed to know the facts about the composition in the field, um, which no one has done yet. And we also know that representation isn't enough. It's important, but it's not enough. So the study also aims to um, to understand the experiences of people of color working inside CSR departments in companies and the unique challenges that they might be experiencing um, or the unique opportunities that they may be experiencing. I think we we need to understand, and the study aims to do this, the recruiting dynamics and practices um, that diversify um, CSR teams or, or, or ESG teams, and also the approaches to professional development and growth that, that these groups and these companies take. And then also, I think, understanding the capacity of, of teams as they are to impact equity through the work that they are doing. And so what gets in the way of that, it, you know, does a lack of lived experience get in the way of, of really doing great equity work? Um, does the lack of DEI experience get in the way? So we want to understand you know, what both, you know, what departments and people of color in them think will best help them um, do this work better. And then finally, I think we want to mine the data for correlations and correlations over time that help us to better serve all of us. So your organization, my organization, um, help us better serve the mission of equity in in the profession. So we're super excited about it and what is possible to learn. We can't do everything in a year, but we certainly, um, and I, by a year, I mean in one study, but we certainly can um, put legs on this as something that we could consider continuing as new information surfaces that we want to dig further into. I love that. And I also, it anchors up in my mind to the evolution of corporate social responsibility and citizenship's role within a company writ large, because it has very much the, and this was now, you know, decades ago, very much started as a a legal and compliance function and then had a a marketing bent or PR function. Yeah. Right. And was seen as a cost center, you know, a place for retired executives. I call it like the Aloha. (laughs) (laughs) 
Right. Uh, but not a, a seriously considered part of the business where you have to really look at who's leading and who's running um, and the strategic nature of the work. And it really, that has shifted so significantly. And this, this diversification of who is doing the CSR work to me feels fundamental and central to how companies are going to really make progress on this writ large, not just with their philanthropy and their employee engagement strategies, but as businesses. So it is. And and therefore the talent that needs to be applied to the function or the changing function uh, needs to be diverse, needs to be creative, needs to be expert in community and expert in business, needs to uh, apply new principles to work that that they are doing. So I think all of those things are really screaming out for this function um, to change. And it, it it's funny because it's a very small function inside of a larger company. And so a lot of the people working in this very small function um, do work for other groups. I think about like, you know, diversifying in technology talent and um, companies for many more years, the CSR departments have been helping other departments inside the company um, grow, recruit, and change the experience of talent in order to be more inclusive. And we haven't done it for ourselves at all because we've been busy doing it for yeah. the departments inside the company that, that make the big money. And so I think, you know, we're, we're coming around to a reckoning for ourselves because the authenticity and the, um, and the variety of stakeholders that are now demanding change are, are, are directly impacted to the work that people in this particular division are working on. So what comes next in that we've been talking about how we are in this inflection point for the function, right? And when you think about your crystal ball and you've, you've recently said in an article that the CSR strategies of yesterday are no longer adequate to meet the rising tide of increasing expectations. That feels so accurate. So true. What, what do CSR strategies of tomorrow need to look like? Um, so I think they need to integrate much more broadly with ESG. And when I think about ESG, I don't think of them as three things in environment, social and governance. I think they are fluid amongst each other. And um, and so the functions of tomorrow will be very integrated in a number of those areas. Um, I think that um, as we've talked about for a long time in this conversation, they need to be much more inclusive and diverse and and focused on creating lasting equitable change because A, it's the right thing to do, but B, it will change the environment of their business and their success. Um, and then I think one of the biggest changes and sort of the hardest for the practitioners to get their heads around is I think social responsibility needs to be really infused in everybody's work all across the company. So the product designers and developers, the customer facing teams and activities, um, the, you know, the, 
the central corporate functions as you know all of them uh, and not just hr or not just the foundation you know all of those different functions inside a company and and the essence of the the core lines of business need to need to be done with a social impact perspective in mind both in terms of how the company makes its money, so responsible products, and how the company spends its money with various stakeholders and and equitably through supplier diversity, through community relationships, all of those things. And I think, so the role of people like me, or like I was inside a company, needs to be broader and needs to almost be coach and counsel for how do you integrate these things into all of the work that's done around the company instead of having all of the responsibility bolted onto one group and having a bunch of other people in the company say that's very nice but not important. Right, right. A nice to have. Right. Nice to have. Right. And it's just it's it's fundamentally different, you know, even looking at the artificial in, intelligence crises of things like um, faucets and bathrooms and the fact that they don't respond to the the artificial intelligence doesn't necessarily record or pick up different skin tones. You know, those kinds of horror stories that happen when people are all white and they're not thinking about socially responsible products, they're not thinking about environmentally responsible products, they're not thinking about the impact of their product on people and communities that could be negative, all of those things need to be sorted out differently. And I think that that our role then is much broader. So we've been at the 10,000 foot level uh, yep. this whole conversation. <laughs> um, and it's just, thank you for, for the perspective. Really, um, it's remarkable to hear of your unpacking of some of these questions. They're big questions. I always tease that I get to ask the big questions and just listen to the answers. <laughs> they're cool. They're, they're fun questions to answer. I could talk all day about any one of them. But uh, you really, uh, uh, such an educational experience uh, for me and for the folks that are listening. And I would love to wrap us up with what drives you? What's the best part of your day? What keeps you going in this work? And with these really big challenges ahead of us, you sound upbeat and motivated to tackle them. What what keeps you going? Um, so what talking with people, um, with staff members or stakeholders, people like you about big ideas, about what is possible and then how we do it is always my very favorite thing. I'm I get I'm amped and so I'll be I'll be way better for the rest of this day because you and I have had these conversations and I've had to think about what my members are struggling with and how we can help them. Um, and then I would say the second best part of my day would be shutting down my computer, whatever time that happens to be, mm -hmm. um, and having that moment to reflect on what we did accomplish today and what we can do better tomorrow um and that it just it drives my every day i love that i love that i was just actually right before this conversation reading a wall street journal article around the importance of 
reflection and pausing and doing nothing mm-hmm. at the end mm-hmm. of an effort or a day, right? And to really make the most of it and cap versus spending that time wrapping up emails or whatever it is, the, the tactical kinetic work that we are also magnetized to do, but actually just shutting it down and doing a quick take stock moment. Yeah, take stock and sort of put your memories away correctly at the end of the day. What what was important that I need to remember? Um, what do I feel good about? What can I feel better about or learn from? And they're not, it's not a linear conversation that I have with myself every day, but some of that happens just in the act of deciding to stop. Like whatever it is that I make the decision to stop, those things are naturally things that I then think about. Um, and and it helps guide my next move, my next day, my next conversation. Well, I would like to be part of your next conversation. <laughs> I'd love to I'd love to keep talking. And I'd really love to talk again when our study comes out and when we have learned more about um the the composition of our field and how to make the work that that our field is responsible for doing more equitable and how those two things intersect. So um, so that's my pitch to, to come back. That's a date. That's a date. Confirmed. Awesome. Uh, and just uh, thank you. And for all of the work that you're doing, we just really scratched the surface on today and what you're bringing and building for the field as someone who has been in this field for more than a decade. ACCP is really where we all go to understand how we're doing and how to get better. So thank you so much for your leadership in this space and for taking a little bit of time today. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune in to our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.